Well, good morning, everybody, as you make your way back to your seats. If you have scripture, go ahead and pull it out as we turn to God's word this morning. We're going to be in two texts. So we're going to be in first in Luke chapter 8 and then in Luke chapter 19. So let's go to Luke chapter 8. And while you're thumbing through the pages to get there, uh, show of hands, how many of you know what LARPing is? Raise your hands. Raise your hands. Nerds. Nerds, all of you. So... If you don't know what LARPing is, you have some Googling to do uh, at your family Christmas gatherings today. Uh, LARPing is live action role playing. And so back when I was doing college ministry uh, at my former church, I got this idea about how to uh, build some community with the college guys in our church. And so the idea was that we would get together every once in a while and we would LARP. Now LARP, like I said, stands for live action role playing, which is so much nerdier than you think it actually is. What it is, is a bunch of grown people, in this case college men, get together and you create and make your own weapons and armor and then you gather in the church gym to beat each other up with said weapons and armor. And so it turned out that this was a fantastic ministry idea, and it started to build community with a bunch of the college guys in church, people who were kind of on the outside. It was this eclectic group of guys who apparently in our core were all just a bunch of nerds. And so we would get together and we would LARP in the church gym. It was fantastic. Now, there there were certain rules, though, to make LARPing fun for everyone. And what it was is you could make weapons, but you had to make it out of PVC pipe. And then the PVC pipe, you would wrap it in a pool noodle, right? So the idea is that you're, you know, you're having fun, but you're not, you're not crushing skulls out there. You know what I mean? It's, and so it was all good. Lots of guys started to come. It started to build community. And then I had this friend of a friend who heard about it. And he was like, hey, I've got some guys who would love to come and play this. And I was like, you kind of scare me in the real world, (laughs) but why not? This could be an awesome opportunity to bring people who, these guys are all unchurched. Like, these are not people who are going to show up on Sunday morning. So I was like, perfect. Yes, you can come too. Um, They, however, did not abide by the safety rules And so instead of half-inch PVC, they used half-inch galvanized steel. (laughs) And then they wrapped their pipe in pool noodle. And so we start to play the first week they're there. And if you've ever been hit by a steel pipe, like, it's not fun, like, in any way, shape, or form. I don't care how many pool noodles you put on that thing. And so I was noticing that as we were playing... Like, it was not going well this night. I mean, like, people were getting busted up, and these guys were loving it. They were having, like, the best time ever. And everybody else is, like, limping around, and they're wondering why their PVC pipe isn't working. That's because they were getting crushed by half-inch steel. Needless to say, uh, that event fell to pieces, and the little community that was kind of being built, it just kind of got shattered that night by half-inch steel pipe. And here's, this connects to Scripture very vaguely, and so I'll do that. What we're looking at this morning is as we continue in our series about making exchanges, right, we're talking about what it means for us to bring something to God and to receive something back from Him. And so just like uh, that half-inch steel pipe blew apart and uh, the community that was building there, there are things in our lives that seek to isolate us and to break apart the community and the work that God's trying to accomplish. 
And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And that's why we're in Luke chapter 8 and chapter 19. Is we're going to consider this morning what it means for us to exchange with God, to give Him our loneliness, to give Him our isolation, and in return to receive from Him not just His presence, but also the presence of His people. And so with that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 8. And we're going to be in verses 26 through 39. So listen as I read for us. And it says, They sailed, they meaning Jesus and his disciples, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Now many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. Now when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, when those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And now let's go to our second text, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord Jesus, we love you. As always, Lord, we come before you now in this time of our worship and we submit ourselves to your teachings. 
We submit ourselves to your scriptures, and Lord, we ask that your spirit would breathe, would speak through your word in a way that speaks to our condition, in a way that meets us where we're at. And I pray, Lord, particularly for this area of loneliness and isolation, for those who are lonely, those who are on the outside, those who are dying on the inside for community and for your presence. Lord, I pray that this would be a welcome call for all of us, Lord, to step closer into your presence, to step closer into your community. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we do that, that you'd be glorified, that you'd be honored, and that our lives would be changed for the better. And so it's for this end, for your glory, Lord Jesus, and all God's people pray. Amen. All right, so one of the things that we need to understand as we, as we get into the text this morning is that there's a big difference between 21st century America and 1st century Palestine. And so one of the biggest differences is a context. The context being this. You and I, in our culture, you and I have a set of rules and understandings that help us make sense of the world around us. You're a product of the Enlightenment. You're a product of the scientific revolution. And so you've been given a set of tools, a set of tools to help you come to terms with how to explain pretty much anything that's in your life. So there is a scientific reason for everything. There's a psychological understanding for everything. And so our first understanding when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter emotional issues, when we encounter spiritual issues, when we encounter relational issues, one of the first filters that you and I turn to is, what's the scientific explanation here? There's got to be something that articulates why I'm going through what I'm going through and why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And yet, that's not the case for the worldview and the context into which the Scriptures were written. You see, they had a different understanding. It's not naive. It's not ignorant. In fact, in many ways, it's far more in line with an eternal and a kingdom perspective. But the understanding was this, that the spiritual world and the physical world are inseparably mixed. That in many cases, what you and I experience physically, relationally, emotionally, have spiritual undertones, and there's a spiritual background to those. And so you and I, when we read Scripture, we kind of have to remind ourselves of this truth, that the spiritual world and the physical world are intertwined, that there's relationship happening here. And so when we read things like this, like Luke chapter 8, a demon-possessed man. I don't know about you guys, but very rarely do I encounter people who I, like, I just, my first understanding is, oh yeah, that's a demon-possessed person, right? Some of you think that when you go to Walmart, you're like, I see it. It's like first century Palestine up in here. But we don't see it that way. But so when we read the Gospels, when we read Luke chapter 8, and we read Jesus comes on shore, and he encounters a person, a demon-possessed man, there's a reality to what you and I experience. And so as we look at Luke 8 and as we look at Luke 19, we have to understand that there's a spiritual reality taking place here. The same spiritual reality that's at play in your life too. And that's this. You have spiritual enemies. The kingdom of God has spiritual enemies that are actively working against the glory and the will of God. And they would seek and they would desire nothing more than to see your life undone. To see God's purposes for you fall to pieces. And one of the greatest tactics that our spiritual enemies will use is they will seek to isolate you and I. 
Because when you and I go to lonely places, we find ourselves in a dangerous place. And so our enemies know, isolate, create loneliness, separate them from God, separate them from each other, and then we're liable and we're susceptible. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We see, look at 1 Peter, you have to go there. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter writing to the church, he warns them about the reality of these spiritual enemies. It's not things that can be explained by physics. It's not things that can be explained by medicine or anything else. Listen to what Scripture says. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Why do I need to pay attention? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. We have, we have spiritual enemies that are seeking to destroy. They're counter to the desires and the will of God in your life. And they will seek, one of their greatest tactics, and it's been this way from the beginning, is they'll seek to isolate you from God. They'll, they'll try and create distance between you and Him. They'll try and create doubt between you and Him. And they'll try and create separation between His people. Because they know that when that succeeds, you're in a dangerous place. And we see that tactic from the very beginning. Look, look at Genesis chapter 3. Right? This has been a tactic from the very beginning. We see in Genesis 2, God makes everything. It's beautiful. It's good. It's perfect. He makes Adam. It's good. But then he says, hey, it's not good that Adam be alone. Not good to be alone. Therefore, let's find him someone suitable. And so I don't know why, but apparently they run through the line of animals, and there's not a suitable animal out there. And then God decides, okay, I'm going to make someone from Adam. And so from Adam comes Eve, comes woman. And so you see this in the text in uh, Genesis 2, 23, right? You can imagine the first time that a man laid eyes on a woman. It may or may not have helped that they were naked in the garden. And so Eve comes out, and Adam's first response is, this is good. This is good. Giraffes and gorillas are super cool, but this thing's good, right? Woman is good. I, we don't know what Eve was thinking, but... I mean, hopefully she was thinking it was good too. And Adam says this in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Right? And so parents of millennials cling to verse 24, that one day, <laughs> one day, my child will find a spouse and they will leave my house. All my moms and dads with 30-year-olds in the house are like, mm, the promises of Scripture. But we see this. <laughs> Please, don't say it out loud right now. So we see this from the very beginning. God made man and woman, and it was good. Adam validates it and says, Lord, yes, this is good. And then all of a sudden, spiritual enemies come in, in the beginning of chapter 3. And they begin to create separation and doubt. First in verse 1, in terms of their relationship with God. Listen to what the serpent says to Eve. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Number one, he's misquoting God. Notice that. Did God really say you're not supposed to eat? The question being here, what's he holding out on you with? What does God know that's in that tree that he doesn't want you to have? 
And so then you begin to cause doubt and wonder, hey, is, hey, this, number one, I'm not freaked out that there's a snake talking to me, but this talking snake brings up a good point. Maybe God is holding out on me. And so I'm going to not trust God. I'm going to go ahead and take part of this forbidden fruit, and then I'm going to encourage my husband to do the same. And so they both enter into sin by disobeying God. They distrust him. There's separation there. There's isolation there. And then look how isolation sneaks in between them. They begin to hide. They're hiding from God. And in verse 12, or rather verse 11, God speaking to the man, to the man says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? It's like, Adam, why are you hiding from me? You never hide from me. Why are you hiding from me? And I got to love my brother's response. Got to love it. One chapter ago, Eve pops up and he's like, this is good. So good. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. And now look at this. Adam, why are you hiding from me? The woman, Lord. It's this woman, and not this woman, the woman you put here. It's her fault. Now, I've done some stupid things in my marriage, but I have never tried to blame the entry of sin into the cosmos on my wife. And so I've got to imagine if there was a couch anywhere in the Garden of Eden, my brother Adam spent some time on it. You know what I mean? But look at this. This is what our enemies do. They create separation, distrust between God, and all of a sudden, that's this woman's fault. I used to think it was good, but no, it's her fault now. And now there's brokenness in that relationship. And Genesis 3 outlines all the ramifications of the brokenness between man and God and man and each other that unpacks because of that decision. And so we start off by saying we have spiritual enemies. Their desire is to isolate you from God and from each other. And with that in mind, we look at Luke chapter 8. Now look at verse 27, right? Jesus shows up in the land of the Gerasenes. This is not Israel, by the way. It's one of the only times that Jesus is doing ministry outside of Israel. And he shows up, and this man comes before him. Now, this man is demon-possessed. And when he says that his name's Legion, that's not like a cool, trendy name. That stands for the fact that he has a lot of demons oppressing him. It's not his name. So this man's suffering. He comes to Jesus, but look at the way that Luke intentionally describes the man's condition. Because there's purpose in that specificity. Look at chapter 8, verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Now, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Right? Like, there's no first-century Palestinian understanding for this. He's naked, and he lives in the tombs, and weird is just weird, no matter what culture you're in. Okay? So he's isolated. He's not in community. He lives in the tombs and he lives naked, so much so that they don't know what to do with him, so they just chain him up. They have no clue what to do with this guy. And so when you look at that, one of the things that jumps out to me, and the question that, that you and I have got to ask ourselves is, man, what's this guy experiencing emotionally and relationally? I mean, set aside the spiritual. He, he's possessed. He's broken. But then you got to ask the question, what's he going through emotionally and relationally? Like, like, where are you at in life when you live naked in the tombs 
and your community doesn't even know what to do with you, so they literally just shackle you up. And then we get further understanding. Look what our spiritual enemies do to this guy. Look at verse 29. Many times it seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he broke the chains. And listen to this piece. He'd been driven by the demon into solitary places. And I don't think Luke is just talking about the solitude of the tombs. He's talking about so much more than just living in a tomb. This guy's got no community, got no relationship with God. So it's not just a physical isolation, it's everything. It's whole life isolation that this guy's experiencing. But then Jesus shows up. And the presence of Jesus makes a difference in this guy's life. And so what we're looking at here is set aside possession, right? That's probably not the issue that you're struggling with in your feelings of loneliness and isolation. But what I'm talking about here is that there are spiritual things at work in your soul that will drive you and lead you to isolated, solitary places in life. And that's the desire and the intent of of your enemy, is that they would want to drive you there. They would want you to feel like that's where you have to go. And so you'll start to hear things and, and play things through in your head about why it's not, or why rather it is okay for you to distance yourself from God. Well, he wouldn't, he wouldn't want to be with me. He doesn't want to be with me. I'm too broken. I've got these issues. So he doesn't want to be with me, so I'll just be over here, and, and I guess that's okay. I guess that's what he wants. And it's also relationally, too. You begin to tell yourself, like, oh, no, my, my friends seem happy without me. My church community, they'll be fine without me. So I'm just going to kind of duck out, check out for a little bit. And look, when I do that, guess what? Everybody still lives on and moves on without me. I mean, we begin to play those narratives in our head, like they don't need me. And, and so we start to take ourselves to solitary, lonely places in our minds. And I'm telling you right now, and Scripture would affirm it, those are some of the most dangerous places for God's people to be, is separated from God and separated from his people. Because when you're in lonely places, you will think things and believe things that you would never believe surrounded in Christ-centered, healthy community. And, and none of us are, are immune to this. I don't care how strong you think you are. We all feel that pull sometimes. I've been going through a, a season in life where uh, just like, not a lot, I mean, I'm just struggling in some areas, right? I'm I really wrestling and questioning like my call, right? And so I got to come up here and I got to tell a couple jokes and I got to make everybody smile and give them a good Christmas feel as they walk out. I got to preach, But last Sunday, after I preached and during open worship, I went into the back room over there and I cried. And then I came back out here and I closed the service. Because we we all know what it's like to feel struggle. And maybe in some areas of your life, you got to go up there and maybe you don't have a stage but you have areas of your life where you got to step up and put on a veneer. You feel like you have to. And so I'm just wrestling with that. Like, man, God, I don't know if this is for me. You know what I mean? I feel woefully inadequate to do this. And on top of that, I feel 
discouraged in all these other things, these healthy habits that I know keep me healthy spiritually and physically, and I haven't been living by those practices. So now all these areas of my life that used to bring me confidence, used to make me feel like I was close with God and close with his people, all of a sudden I start to question those things. And last Tuesday, we have our connect group, and I love my connect group. I would never want to miss my connect group. And Tuesday night, I told Taylor, I don't know if I want to go tonight. I'm just not feeling it. Maybe I'll just stay home tonight. And for whatever reason, I, just, I was prompted to go, and so I just kind of sucked it up, and I went, and I led my small group. But I decided to share with my small group. I said, hey, I'm struggling. And so my small group that night was uh, the Cleases, um, the Keezers, and Rachel. And I told them, like, hey, guys, I'm struggling. Would you pray for me? I'm kind of struggling in these areas of life. And they prayed, and we prayed for each other. And I left that place. It wasn't like a transfiguration, right? I didn't leave the mountain shining. But I know that my people are praying for me. And so do I still struggle with those things this week? Oh, man, you're darn right I do. But I needed to be with my people. And then Friday, we had a Christmas party. And I left Tuesday night and Friday night, and I came away from that. I was like, man, being with God's people changed my life in a week. It's so important for God's people to be with each other. So important for God's people to be with him. And there are voices inside your head, your own voice most often, that's going to tell you and justify for you and give you reasons why you need to just pull away just a little bit. And I guarantee you, when you do that, you will find yourself in verse 29. You'll find yourself in solitary places. It might not be a tomb, but it's going to feel like one. My prayer is, is that rather than back away from it, that you would lean into his presence and his people's presence. And we see that as the text continues. Go to verse 35, right? So Jesus, he encounters this man. He changes this man's life, casts out the demon. Look at verse 35 of chapter 8. So the people, they hear about this, they come. And the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out. Listen to how Luke describes him now. Sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Sitting at Jesus' feet. That's only used one other time in Luke's gospel. And that's in Luke 10 when Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what that means is there's a, there's a relationship there now. There's discipleship. They're sitting at his feet, learning from him. A far cry from where this guy was before he met Jesus. And look at the next thing. Dressed. I, I, there's not like a spiritual thing there. He just had clothes on, right? Which is like a f- big jump from verse 27. But what does that symbolize? Like Luke's not just trying to po- point out that he put on pants. He's trying to show this. Now this guy's dressed. Now, he's, now he can be a part of community again. Because just like our time in first century Palestine, naked people didn't tend to be a part of community in a normal way. But now he's clothed. He's in his right mind. And Jesus, he's sitting at his feet in discipleship, in submission, and now he's ready to go back into community. And so he wants to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you can't come with me, but do this instead. I want you to go back into town and tell everybody about what I did for you. And the man goes. Significant enough, he's back in town now, sharing about the transforming work 
of what Jesus did in his life. He traded his loneliness and his isolation for God's presence. And it changed his life. And so my prayer is, hey, you're, I get it. You're not facing demonic oppression probably. But you're at, or there are spiritual forces at work in your life that are going to seek to pull you apart. And my prayer is don't listen to that. But lean into God's presence. Lean into his people. And I guarantee you, I can say that because I've experienced this week. I guarantee you it will change your life. But you've got to lean into that. Now let's look at Luke 19, right? Here's the second time. This, isn't, this is a different dynamic, but a similar condition. So the first one, the demon-possessed man, there's spiritual forces that are seeking to isolate him. Now in Zacchaeus' instance in Luke 19, this is all about the self-exile of, of broken decisions. There's not a spiritual issue here at play for Zacchaeus. Dude wanted money and he chose it over other things. Right? That's not, a, that's not spiritual forces at work. That's a guy chasing after money, and he got exactly what he was looking for, and he lost everything in the process. And so when we look at Zacchaeus, the first and most important thing we need to understand about him, he's a chief tax collector. Okay, now again, first century Palestine, different than today. In first century Palestine, the way that Rome got their money is they would say, hey, we need to collect money from GGFC. Who wants to do it for us? Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I would never do that to my people. Oh, okay. I'll give you a bonus, and you can keep whatever extra you collect. I'll do it. And so Zacchaeus bought in. He's like, yeah, I'll take the money. Now, tax collectors were not popular people in first century Palestine. Right? They're not the people. I've got to imagine the parties were super lonely for Zacchaeus. Right, because nobody goes to the party. It's like, oh, yeah, what do you do? Oh, cool, I'm a teacher. Awesome, man. Tell me about what you do with kids. That's amazing. That's so cool. What do you do? I work for the IRS. <laughs> I'm going to go on that side. And we just walk away. Right, because they're just, it's not a very popular job. Somebody's got to do it, but it doesn't, doesn't win you friends. And so we see that in the text. Look at the reaction of people when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I need to spend time with you. Look at verse 7 and look at how people respond to Jesus saying, I got to spend time with the tax collector. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. It's like, Jesus, this dude made a choice. He separated from us. He chose that. And he made a lot of money doing it, but he's not one of us. And so Zacchaeus is sitting in that tree, and you got to wonder what drives a little man to climb up into a tree to see a dude. There's something broken in him, and it's something that the money he traded for couldn't fix. Can you imagine how lonely Zacchaeus was sitting in that big old house with all that money? Lonely because nobody else in town wants to hang out with him. To be real, he would just crave to be rejected in conversation because he's not even invited to the party in the first place. And just like Zacchaeus, you and I have a propensity sometimes to make some bad decisions. Now, maybe your bad decision didn't make you a millionaire. But sometimes your bad decision has lost you things. Maybe it's lost you family. Maybe it's lost you friends. 
and now you're floating, you're spinning out of control because you don't have community anymore. You thought that what you wanted was going to satisfy you. Maybe it was sinful, and you chased after that, and you saw how that broken game plays out. Or maybe it's just an unhealthy decision, and you chased it, and you got it, and now you're sitting there alone with it. And like Zacchaeus, you're sitting up in that tree, and you're just hungry to see Jesus. You're hungry to be welcomed into something. And then Jesus invites Zacchaeus in, and the people aren't happy. But now, again, look at the word that Luke uses. Look at verse 9. Look at how Jesus brings him in to community. He says this, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. You catch what he's doing there? He made a choice that in the children of Abraham's mind, the Jewish people, he's out. He sold us out. He wants his money, fine, but he's not one of us anymore. And now when Jesus restores him, when he says, hey, you chose something broken, and I get it. You've self-exiled because of your bad, broken decisions. But guess what? Now I'm going to restore you. And it's not just about salvation, but Jesus is intentional and says, you too are a son of Abraham. What that means is come on back in. Come on back in. And for some of us, that's what we need to hear. You've made bad decisions. But that doesn't mean that you have to be on the outside. And what I, would, what I would put forth and what I think the gospel affirms is this, is, is that the Lord is inviting you to make that exchange. You do not have to be lonely. You do not have to live in isolation, whether because there's spiritual enemies trying to seek to draw you away or because you just done, made some stupid decisions. No matter what, you can exchange your loneliness and your isolation for God's presence and his people's presence. And when you do that, I guarantee you, your life is going to be changed forever. But that's a choice only you and I can make. You have got to choose to lean into the presence of God, to lean into the presence of his people. My prayer is that nothing would hold you back from that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you bring your presence to your people. We affirm that. All throughout scripture, you have been moving in the direction of brokenness. You've been moving in the direction of your people. And so we celebrate that, especially in this time of the year, that with your birth, it was the closest you could come, that you took on flesh, you became one of us to dwell amongst us. You are with us, Emmanuel, and we celebrate that presence this morning. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those of us who feel isolated, for those of us who feel lonely, whether it's because we're being pulled away or because we've pushed ourselves away, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would lean in to your presence and that we would lean into your people and you would change our lives because of it. And Lord Jesus, it's for your glory and in your name that we pray these things. Amen.